How are you? How are you in this most simple and difficult of human arts? Of sitting, standing, being alone with our mind. <coughs> Intending to look deeply, maybe the odd moment of looking deeply, other moments of confusion or doubt, or pain. And yet you're still here, coming back again and again. What is it that draws you? What is it that speaks to you that you keep coming back to take your seat, to follow a practice, to endeavor to be present? What is it that we want from that? I'd like to offer a few reflections this evening on a little bit of what we're doing here. Yanai left us last night at the end of chapter one with the teaching of the truth that it is not the experience itself that will do it for us. Even the most sublime inner experience isn't going to be the place that we find lasting home, rest, a place to rest, the place of satisfaction. Even if we were to put aside all the aches and pains and heartaches for a while, the inner experience itself won't be what does it for us because it too is of that same nature to some, at some point change. At some point its constructed nature arises, stays for a while and passes. So the experience can't do it for us, but where does that leave us? Does that leave us that we don't even give any attention to our experiences? Does it leave us in this kind of aloof, meditative state of, oh, just experience? You know, I don't really need to bother with that. It's not the place where happiness lies. But we need to consider that we live in a world of experiences every moment there is an experience to be met. There's either an experience of a sight, a sound, a taste, a touch, a smell. And in the Buddha Dharma they uh, include a sixth sense of the mind sense door, the sense door of thoughts, images. And each moment there is one of these experiences coming to us, moment by moment. Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, or the mind. So these experiences come moment to moment, and in our practice we're asked to meet them. And we might say, well, why should we meet them if they can't be the place that gives us satisfaction? And the point about that is that this is our reality. These experiences moment by moment and practice far from being something that removes us from this world of experience is actually something that invites us right back into it to form what we could call a wise relationship with experience. So each, meet, each moment there's a meeting each moment there's a meeting on your cushion. There's the meeting with your breath, 
the meeting with your aching knees, the the meeting perhaps with your mind of resistance, or your mind of ease, or your mind of calm, or the heart of sadness, or the heart of joy. Each moment there is a meeting. So the question is, do you want to turn up for the meeting? Will you show up for the meeting? And for us to start to take an interest in how we show up for the meeting, because there surely is a meeting in every moment. The Zen student once asked the Zen master, what was the Buddha doing during his lifetime? And the Zen master responded, very simply as they are apt to do, what was the Buddha doing during his lifetime? The response was an appropriate response that what the Buddha was doing during his lifetime was simply an appropriate response by coming to the meeting with this moment again and again, which we could say is the part of the fruit of his practice, showing up at the meeting. When we really fully show up at the meeting with this moment, then we can be surprised that there is an appropriate response that comes from our intelligence, from our awareness, from our heart from the depths of our being that is not constructed, that is not fabricated, that is not old but it is actually an appropriate response to this moment and this we all know it's not like we have to wait until we're the fully enlightened Buddha we touch into these moments where we're fully at the meeting you may have been there today fully at the meeting with your breath with your knee pain when all the other moments around it were trying to get rid of it, push it away. And in just one moment, really showing up at the meeting and something else can start to show itself. A creative response, something new starts to glimmer through in awareness. So how was your meeting today? How were your many thousands of meetings today. And to be careful that we don't get into evaluating. Because the meeting might equally be with the resistance. We might say, well, I didn't meet anything today. I was resistant all day. I didn't want to be here. All day I wanted to leave Gaia House. For us to actually know what is the meeting with in this moment. And it might be that the meeting is with resistance. We think we're supposed to be with our breath, but actually there's rage, or there's boredom, or dullness. Can we actually discern and see, aha, this is the meeting. Can I meet the resistance? Can I feel how it feels in the body, in the mind? What's the posture of resistance like? I wonder if anyone has experienced resistance today. Now, how does it feel in the body? You know, does it feel wide and expansive or does it have this kind of kind of grim kind of contraction to it? Again, the practice isn't to judge the state. That's what's so beautiful, in a way, about our awareness. We're not asked to push that away. We're asked to come into the meeting with this. 
ah, in this moment it's like this. Whatever it is. Because whatever it is in the meeting in this moment is the doorway. Is the doorway to actually deepening in our connection with what is most profoundly true. Surprisingly, it may seem, we don't always see things as they are. One of the epithets of the Buddha, one of the attributions of the Buddha, we could say, is that the Buddha, the awakened mind, sees without distortion. And when we're not sitting in our awakened mind in any one moment, we're seeing with distortion. And the distortion might be that we're you know, looking at the world either through our eyes or through our ears, we're perceiving the world, or through our mind. And instead of meeting it just as it is, as that pristine contact with colour or thought or sound, instead it comes imbued with all our prejudices, all our views, all our opinions, all our memories can be there too. And we don't always see something as it is. It's like we're watching through a projector film and all the old films are somehow superimposed one after the other and we see through that distortion. So are we interested to come to the meeting of contact? in the days here. <coughs> and this can be in the hall or out of the hall. You know, there can be the contacts that we get stuck to. I don't know if anybody has got stuck what is known in the trade as the sticky mind or the Velcro mind, where something happens during the day and it's as if we get stuck to it and we sort of keep playing that thing back at various times through the day. It might be, for example, you know, we're walking past someone in the corridor and we happen to look up and they look up at the same time and then we pass. And then our mind says, why did they look at me so funny? You know, don't they like me? You know, what did I do wrong? Why do they, why do they look at me like that? And all we can see imprinted on our mind for the rest of the day is this kind of face of this person looking at us as if they didn't like us or as if they did like us then we think, mm, what do they want? You know, What are they doing? Get out of my space. I'm on retreat. And what we notice sometimes we get stuck to these contacts and they keep appearing again and again and again. Or it might be that someone comes into the sitting rate you know, and we hear the sound. Instead it's not a visual contact, it's an oral contact. And we might have felt we're just getting concentrated and the door goes and it's ten minutes into the sitting and we get irritated. And long past, long past the time that the door has shut and that person's already sitting down and peacefully serene in their posture, we're still playing the, the view. Who was it? I bet it was that one. You know, that one that's always late or the one that always does this or the one that always shuffles. Hmm. You know, and we can get into making the solutions in our mind. You know, if I was the chief executive of Guy House, I'd make the rules a little bit more stringent so people couldn't come in late. 
and we'd be kind of making up these scenarios in our mind long, long, long time after the person has come in and sat down. It's sticky. It's sticky. And we're playing it back again and again because in that moment we don't know what the meeting is. The meeting in that moment is, I'm irritated. Can I just make contact with that? Feel that in the body. Breathe with that. Be honest enough to say, yeah, the suffering is here. It hurts here. Or sometimes we don't exactly stick to a contact, but we bounce right off it. You know, something can happen, we can just have a little thought in our mind or we bounce right off it and we create the whole fantasy world around that contact. Or we might have a feeling in the body or a mind state or a pain in the heart and we can't quite mute it. We bounce off and create an imaginary world. Now this always isn't always, you know, terrible things. We're also interested to see the process itself. You know, so for example, one incident I noticed last year of bouncing from a contact. I was staying with uh, somebody who was just becoming my friend. I didn't know them very well, and he's a teacher uh, in this tradition who lives in Seattle, in North America. And I was staying at his house with Yanai and we were teaching a retreat together with him. I didn't know him really well, so I didn't know his hobbies and what he did and the kind of things he liked. And I was going upstairs in his house one night as we were all preparing to go to bed. And I'd got to about the third step up his staircase when I heard in my ears this most beautiful sound coming from what I thought was his bedroom. And this sound had this kind of um, monotone in the background, like this kind of steady note, like you sometimes have in Indian music, like this steady note running all the way through. And just over the top, in quite a high pitch, for a man, I thought, singing this, it was quite high, so I guess he must have been trained somewhere along the line, was this just this... um, two or three tones of going above the tone and below the tone and back to the tone. This kind of ethereal, beautiful, angelic music coming from his room. And I didn't know what it was, but the mind isn't usually satisfied to not know what things are, and it tries to think, what's that? You know, what's that sound? And I thought, oh, I know what it is. He's actually doing some religious devotional singing before he goes to bed. What a sweet soul, I thought. You know, he's up there with some monotone instrument tuning away and he's doing this overtone chanting on this beautiful, um, sort of angelic voice that he has. I thought, I didn't know he was that. I didn't think he was that kind of person. You know, I thought he'd be a bit more into rugby or something. Oh, and I, this whole world kind of evolved between about the third step and the sixth step, you know. Have you seen how quickly the mind can move? Have you seen how quickly worlds can get fabricated and created? And so a whole picture built up of where he must have trained, probably in Varanasi, and, you know, the whole story came along. By the time I got to the sixth step, 
another thought entered my mind. Oh, I've heard this sound somewhere before. As I got nearer to the bedroom, it didn't sound so much like singing. And suddenly the whole world collapsed. The whole world that was created collapsed. And I remembered hearing this sound one other place before, which was here at Guy House. And I was teaching a retreat with Shada, who's also from North America. And I remember this strange sound coming from her bedroom. And I put two and two together and realized that what they had in common was that they both had ultrasonic toothbrushes. <laughs> and in that moment, this kind of disappointment, this, oh, you know, all my fantasy world of who this lovely, ethereal, angelic being of my friend was collapsed. And all the vanity that goes together with that of all the imputing all these things to this person. And there's a way, you know, this isn't a very catastrophic example of the moving mind, but it shows us in a way where we can get into it, because other times we get riding on the train and it can end up in all kinds of places we don't necessarily want to be. And the feature of that, what it's called in the tradition, this lovely word called papancha, where from a contact the mind jumps and jumps and weaves and weaves and soon a whole web of a world is built. The papancha of the mind, from one thing to the next to the next, completely lost touch with reality. And yet there's something attractive in it for us. It seems to hold out the promise as if there is some better reality than this one. None of us would usually admit or even think that we see things through distortion because the way we perceive this is so real to us, so true to us, that's the way it is. We don't know that we're seeing things through veils, as they say in some traditions. Veils, it's almost as if there's veils in front of our eyes, shrouds where when we see through that, we don't really see things as they are. But we soon start to know as we practice, we have these moments where the veils drop away and we come to the meeting. And some of our old ways of seeing, some of our old ways of viewing ourselves, viewing the world, viewing our mind, viewing our heart, viewing the nature of reality, start to shift. And we're surprised what we call an insight, where we suddenly see in to the way things are a little bit more clearly. And again, this doesn't have to be dramatic, you know, cloud bursting, God coming down with the hand and, you know, picking us for the insight. Sometimes it can be very quiet, very subtle, but just the veils of perception shift. It might be in a contact with nature outside or with ourself when we meet our body the pain the ease we meet our heart in a slightly different way than we've met it before so not to need to get too esoteric about the veil shifting it's very natural and very normal and some of practice is tuning ourselves to notice when the veils actually lift and shift. My favourite example of this, to really bring it down to earth, 
is a story some of you will have heard me tell before of a man in a prison in North America who was practicing insight meditation and the way that they taught it there was that the teacher would come in once a week and the, there would be a class for the afternoon they'd discuss their practice and then they'd be encouraged to practice during the week and the teacher would come in the next week and they'd share their experience and this one man after a few weeks of practice um, came to the tutor the tutor came in and this man said really really excited he said and the tutor said yeah you know what's what's been happening in your experience and the man said you know rain and the tutor said yes I know rain and he said well it's not just rain you know he said it comes down in drops it comes down in drops and here for this man a veil had lifted and the joy of when the veil starts to lift that for whatever reason in that man's conditioning he'd never been able to see rain he'd seen it as something solid something fixed something <coughs> firm and substantial and suddenly it's like the clouds start to lift from our eyes and he actually saw it more clearly as it was and the sweetness that comes in that simple seeing <coughs> so in coming to the meeting can we be interested to see when our responses are conditioned when they come out of these old views and old ways of doing it and our old strategies and all the things we try to meet this world which isn't always easy are we willing to see when our responses are conditioned and in this teaching there's a very simple formula if you like for conditioned responses and we could just give this one instruction all week and it would it would suffice actually and the instruction is when your experience is pleasant look and see if you're grasping after it to try and keep it and see the suffering in that when your experience is unpleasant look and see are you trying to push it away and resist it and can you see the suffering in that and if your experience is neither pleasant nor unpleasant which can be a lot of our experience at times if it's neutral look and see are you bored are you disinterested are you getting off on another track and if you are can you see the suffering in that seeing where we're trying to keep the pleasant experience trying to push away the difficult and trying to ignore the neutral keeping studying that seeing when we're doing it because what we notice it's not the experience itself it's not necessarily the knee pain or the joy that are the problem but the way we relate to it 
the way our conditioned mind immediately by default tries to grasp it, push it or ignore it. we usually get caught in the idea that the experience is what is impeding my progress in my life, in my practice, in my journey. How many of you have had the thought today, you know, if it, if it wasn't for my knee pain, you know, then I could do this retreat. If it wasn't for that person that keeps coughing at the front, you know, then I could do this retreat. If it wasn't for the fact that my heart right now has grief or sadness or anger or fear, if it wasn't for that, then I could do this retreat. And in a way, in that way, we keep postponing our freedom. We keep postponing the moment of coming home. When my cold gets better, then I'll... It's like we say it, you know, when there's somebody tricky at work. When that person leaves work, then it will be all right. You know, when my next door neighbour moves house, then it will be all right. (coughs) And always postponing that moment of completely coming home to the real meeting. There's a way we think that it's the experience that impedes us. The experience is the thing that's in the way like we're knocking against the experience, pain in our body, pain in our heart, pain in our mind, someone in the way. And I think that sense that things are impeding us comes from a very real place. It comes from our remembering that actually our true nature is unimpeded, it is unbound. The nature of our mind isn't obstructed. And on some level we know this. And when we feel things impeding us, we sense the anomaly. We sense that something isn't right. But we tend to impute it to the experience rather than imputing it to the way that we view ourselves and the world. You know, it's my fear that's in the way. It's my leg pain that's in the way. It's my sadness that's in the way. It shouldn't be there. It shouldn't be there. For many years in my practice, I had excruciating arm pain. Hearing from a few of you already, there's been some encounters with upper body pain. And I tried my best to figure out the best strategy to continue to do my practice but not actually attend to the arm pain. First retreat, I grit my teeth and tried to ignore it. Because clearly it seemed to my mind that this, <coughs> this was in the way. If it wasn't for this arm pain. And when the arm pain wasn't there, then I felt like things were going really well. And then the arm pain would come and it would be these two can't coexist. This shouldn't be here. First strategy, ignoring it. The kind of fundamental strategy of ignorance. 
is the ignoring. Second retreat, I mean, I can't remember if it's exactly this uh, linear, but let's say second retreat or second encounter, fighting it. Right, it's me and the arm pain. I'm going to get through this, you know, battle with it a bit, push it, shove it, trying to get the better of it, muscling in, coming to the meeting with this kind of puffed up grandeur of trying to get in there and push my experience away. Because there's a background view that says it can't be right. You know, all this amount of pain cannot be right. Next strategy was trying to be stoic. Okay, I'll tough it out. Me and the arm pain, I can't ignore it anymore, but I'll just sit here and it can sit there. And as long as we keep the status quo, then, you know, we'll call it a truce. And in this way, I noticed that my mind hardened and so did the arm pain. Next strategy, I don't know if you've ever tried this one, of being the martyr. Okay, I'll be a saint. It's the arm pain and me, okay? And establishing this martyr persona with the arm pain. And feeling very kind of um, inflated as I bore this suffering. The next um, strategy was almost the kind of, why me, you know? Why me? I've been sitting here on all these retreats and it's still there. I thought I dealt with it on the first retreat and here it still is and this kind of, uh, in the mind. It's another kind of response. And in the way the meeting in that moment is not with the arm pain. The meeting needs to be with the pain of that, ah, uh, ah, uh, it's not there that kind of moan in the mind, to meet that, to really come to see that with kindness, with compassion. And then finally, this kind of, oh, I give up, can't do it. And after that, actually noticing that some of the defences started to melt, as the awareness relaxed, without a strategy, but actually what started to come through was the grief and the sadness and the hurt that was in a way locked away in some of that armoring that was coming out as arm pain. Now this isn't always the case with pain, but in this particular case it was. what would it be to come to the meeting to know firstly what the meeting is with now we think it's supposed to be with the pain but actually it might be with the mind that's meeting the pain it might be with the fear that can be there together as we come closer to the difficult at times it might be with the sadness it might be with the resistance and the hardening and the toughening what is the meeting with what and what the meeting is with is whatever is arising in this moment. What is actually where the aliveness is in this moment. Come to meet that. And this is not easy work. This is not easy work as we start to um, open the tombs, if you like. The aspect of practice that is like a purifying 
of those areas within us that we haven't been able to meet exactly before. And as we come into that, we need to bring the qualities of kindness, of compassion, of the qualities of awareness that can actually come to the meeting and there's enough room for it all. There's enough room for us, however we're manifesting in this moment. There's enough room for all the tears, there's enough room for the sadness, for the grief, there's enough room for the ease and the joy. You know, sometimes it can even be challenging to make space for the beautiful. That even that, when it's unknown territory, can feel hard to bear. So much joy or so much love that might be there. There's a beautiful piece from the German poet Rilke when he speaks about this journey of meeting that which we've been holding at bay. He said, We have no reason to harbour any mistrust against our world, for it is not against us. If it has terrors, they are our terrors. If it has abysses, these abysses belong to us. If there are dangers, we must try to love them. And if we only arrange our life in accordance with the principle which tells us that we can trust in the difficult, then what now appears to us as the most alien will become our most intimate and trusted experience. How could we forget those myths, those ancient myths that stand at the beginning of all races, the myths about dragons that at the last moment are transformed into princesses? Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are princesses who are only waiting to see us act just once with beauty and courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us is in its deepest essence something helpless that wants our love. coming to the meeting and coming to the meeting without our agenda even the agenda, oh I'm supposed to meet it with love I think that was one of my other arm pain strategies trying to be nice to it you know, oh, okay it's me and you you know, trying to be nice to my arm pain but even when we come to anything with a strategy you know what it's like You know, when someone meets you with a strategy, it's got this kind of underlying motive to try and fix you or trying to fix ourselves, and it doesn't work. We sense the um, division in it. We sense the duality in it. We sense the essential unkindness of trying to fix something because first, what we truly desire is a real meeting. What we truly need is a real meeting with ourselves. So are we willing to do some of the legwork? And some of the legwork in the past is being willing to feel the limitation of these conditioned responses. We see our conditioned responses more and more clearly the more we practice. And there's this horrible stage in practice, we could say, where 
we're no longer completely lost in all our conditioned responses. When, you know, when the neighbour drills on the house, on our adjoining wall on a Sunday and he drills all day long and in the past we either used to always, you know, go around there and give him a piece of our mind or we cowered because we were afraid to speak to him or we, you know, built up a kind of resentment to him or we told everyone else how awful he was or we tried to wait till he he left. You know, we have our strategies, we have our responses but as the awareness starts to become more real and more tangible for us we're no longer satisfied with our conditioned responses to the difficult, to the lovely, to this moment. Something in us is no longer satisfied because what's calling to us is this aspect of our being that is not conditioned, where actually there is a creative awareness that can come to the meeting and respond, just like in our Buddha nature, our awakened nature. So are we willing to feel this dissatisfaction with our conditioned responses and we'll see them here you know it might be our conditioned response in the dinner queue at lunchtime or it might be our conditioned response that you know breakfast has finished and our mind is already waiting for lunch and we say oh I always do that you know why is my mind already set up for lunch and it's only half eight you know or we might be in the dinner queue and feeling impatient or angry with the person in front of us for being too mindful. Why are they so slow? You know, why don't they speed up a bit? There's 60 people to come and, you know, this isn't a place for being mindful and slow. You know, get your dinner together. And we see our conditioned responses. Are we willing to have the humanity to meet them, not try and be something else? You know, not try and trying to be fake holy, as Ram Dass calls it. You know, we're faking our holiness. But actually to meet where the conditioned responses are. And if the conditioned response is fake holiness, can we meet that? Wow, look, I'm, I'm faking my holiness. Here I am, looking good, walking down the meditation hall, you know, whatever it might be. Are we willing to see that and have the humour and sweetness that this is what we do in any moment that we're not in touch with our true nature. This is what we do. Coming to meet our conditioned responses, feeling the limitation of them, the dissatisfaction where something else is calling to us. Embracing that, it's what in the tradition we would call coming into contact with the first noble truth coming into contact with dukkha, with unsatisfactoriness, with the stress that is there when the view of ourselves, who and what we think we are, comes into conflict with the way things are. There's a kind of a a kind of a um, banging into something. And we feel that. It's as if something is impeding the way. And we're asked in practice to come close to meet that sense of limitation where I comes into conflict with what is around me, what is inside me. To meet that, to stand with that, to stand with that dukkha, to understand it. And that might mean feeling it, 
feeling the pain of that limitation might mean feeling the responses in the heart feeling the frustration or the sadness or whatever might be there because truly what we start to see it is not the phenomena that is impeding us what is most unsatisfactory to us and what our heart yearns and is called most towards is the unsatisfactoriness of living at a distance from our unimpeded nature living at a distance from our mind that is already unbound living at a distance from our unconfined awareness that is really the call to home the call back to that essential mind and if we're willing to hang out in those places where we come and we bash up against the world in and around us stand with that meet that come to know that as it is come to that meeting then slowly the walls of that constructed house can start to soften and make space for something new to emerge One of the ways that we can know this is that it has certain characteristics. The characteristics of this conditioned response usually speak to us that it feels very old. It feels like, oh, I've been here a hundred times in this way. Or it feels musty. You know, something in our mind feels musty. It's nothing new. There's been no new air let in for a while or we can notice it because the world starts to look two-dimensional that thread of vitality and aliveness and wonder that we may have remembered from being a child is no longer accessible to us things appear two-dimensional people at Gaia House all look two-dimensional and the teachings look two-dimensional I look two-dimensional nothing interesting here breath again you know, knee pain again when this phrase of again comes round in our mind this again sitting again walking again you know, the bell again when that sense of again comes to us please, seeing, seeing it as a flag it's like a flag saying hey, this is suffering this is unsatisfactory what is going on in this moment that's so hard to be with when the mind says, again. In a way, that again is like a shorthand for a boredom where we're living at the surface. And it's a flag to ask us to come in. What is it in this moment? What is the feeling? What is the response? What's the body doing? Am I getting, you know, agitated, frustrated, collapsed? Come to meet that because that too when we come to meet it doesn't mean that that's ultimately the way things are it's the doorway it's the doorway meeting the frustration making space for it giving enough room for that sensation to move through is the atmosphere of kindness that we seek for this journey to unfold
also showing up at the meeting and even if what we want is to not show up that's another meeting no, no more meetings you know? however it is our mind responds I hate meetings I've always hated meetings that's why I came to Guy House to be on my own you know, so I could avoid meetings whatever is our response can we meet that because what we start to come into contact with is the place within us where there really truly is enough room for it all where no one particular thing has to define us but there's really enough room for this life to move and breathe I'd like to read a story of a a meeting. Sometimes we don't have any choice about the meetings. Sometimes something in us calls so loudly that we have no other choice. And this is a true story, again, some of you may have heard this one before, a true story from a hospice about a woman called Hazel. A woman called Hazel came into the hospital in a very contracted state. The nurses called her a real bitch on wheels. Few wished to spend time with her. All her life had been a struggle for control. All she did not want or could not have was judged and pushed away from her heart. All that she could get was grasped at feverishly. And so she found herself dying alone and in a great deal of pain. She had judged so much, so many, so often, that even her grown children would not visit. For six weeks her isolation and pain increased until one night she came to a point where she could no longer stand the suffering in her back and legs or the pain of her unlived life. Feeling like jumping out of her skin, she began to review her life amidst the pulsations of her pain. With a sigh, she let the helplessness wash over her and exhausted Unable to fight another moment, she surrendered. She let go and she died into her life, into the moment. Letting go into the pain in her spine and legs, she began to sense, quite beyond reason, that she was somehow not alone in her suffering. She felt what she later called the 10,000 in pain. She began to experience all the other beings who at that very moment were lying in the same bed of agony. At first there arose the experience of herself as a brown-skinned woman, breasts slack from malnutrition, lying on her side, a starving child suckling at her empty breast, spine and legs twisted in pain. For an instant she became this Ethiopian woman, dying in the mud. Then there arose the experience of herself as an Eskimo Inuit woman, lying on her side, dying during childbirth, tremendous pain in her back, hips, legs, and dying the same death. Image after image arose. She was each, dying beside the others. She experienced the 10,000 sufferings simultaneously. She said, the pain was beyond my bearing. 
I couldn't stand it any longer and something broke maybe it was my heart but I saw it just wasn't my pain it was the pain it wasn't just my life it was all life it was life itself as the days unfolded after this extraordinary experience Hazel's heart opened more and more to all the others in pain at the hospital. She asked after them constantly and the room became a place where the nurses would come because it was a room of love. Soon her children came to visit because of the warmth and surrender of her phone call, responding to her plea for forgiveness. Her grandchildren sat on her bed, the grandchildren she had never met, the hearts she had rejected before they were born. For several weeks before her death, her room became a place of healing, of finished business and of universal care. Can we sit together for a few minutes? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.